the Christmas movie Elf, uh, a boy, a baby named Buddy, is adopted by one of Santa Claus's elves when he's a baby. And so, growing up in the North Pole, Buddy does not have the normal childhood that we had. And then when he becomes an adult, he decides that he wants to go and he wants to find his biological dad. And so he heads off to New York City. But because Buddy didn't grow up in the life that we have, he does a lot of things in the movie that would make us think this dude is out of his mind. He's crazy. One of the things, for example, is he's beginning to eat and he wants to explain the, the main food groups. He says the main food groups are candy, candy cane, candy corn, and syrup as he pours syrup on his spaghetti. I think those are Josie's main food groups too, by the way, in case you're wondering. <laughs> At another time, he's walking past this little dirty side store dive, and on the side of the wall, it says, world's greatest or best cup of coffee. And he rushes in, and he says, congratulations, you did it, world's best cup of coffee. Uh, <laughs> actually, not every time we pass a sign where it says, the best something in an area, we quote that movie. It's really bad when you drive down to Foley, where Ashley's mom is. They hit signs everywhere that say that. Congratulations, world's blank. <laughs> My favorite, though, is when he, as soon as he enters New York, he's walking down the road and he discovers that there's chewing gum underneath the railings. <laughs> and he thinks the chewing gum is free chewing gum and he begins to pull it off the railings and stuff it in his mouth till his mouth is full of old chewing gum. It gives me shivers every time. I love that part. <laughs> He does a lot of stuff in the movie that would make you think this guy is out of his mind. What's interesting is that there were people in Corinth that were saying the same thing about the Apostle Paul. And not just people outside their church, there was people inside the church that said Paul is crazy. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, he begins to turn and talk about his speaking ability and his appearance. And these are things that he's kind of brought up earlier in the book, in chapter 2 and chapter 4. But now, he's really going to dive in and address this issue. Is the Apostle Paul like Buddy and that he really doesn't have an idea of how the world works? Or has Paul discovered something and has something deeper that we need to realize too? And so, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. Let's go ahead and read all of it right now. It says, Actually, let's go ahead and start, if you will, with verse 9. It says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or as absent, to be pleasing to him, meaning Jesus. But we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body, in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. But we are well known to God, and I hope that we are also well known in your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we have lost our minds, it is for God, and if we are of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. So in verses 9 and 10, Paul is, this is what we talked about last week, he brings up this concept, this idea, that 
Every single one of us, including you and me, are going to one day be in front of Jesus. And he's going to judge us for all the things we've done, both the good things and the bad. And for that reason, Paul says he makes it his ambition in life to please Christ with his life. Now this is, and we talked about last week, this is not a judgment to determine where you go for eternity. That decision is already made when you're alive on earth. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, then you go to eternal life with heaven. If you don't, then you go to eternal punishment in hell. What this is, is to determine the degrees of rewards that Christians will receive in eternity or the degrees of punishment that non-believers will receive in eternity. So Paul says, you know, knowing that we have this day where Jesus is going to judge everything we've done, both the good and the bad, he says, I have a fear of the Lord. So he has the appropriate response to the thought, and that's fear. The phrase fear of the Lord is actually an Old Testament term. And it meant not that Paul was cowering from God, thinking of him as some, some huge being that uncontrollably and recklessly flies off the handle every time Paul sins. That's not what it's picturing. It's picturing somebody who understands that we serve an almighty and powerful God. And we have, should have a reverent awe and respect for him that drives us to obey him. That's what it means to fear the Lord. What's interesting about Paul is that that term is clearly used to refer to God in the Old Testament. But here it's specifically referring to Jesus. So Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And so he says in verse 11 that because he has this ambition with his life to please Christ with his life. And because he knows what it means to fear the Lord. He has these three things that he does. First, he persuades people. Second, he knows that he's well-known to God. And third, he says that he hopes and strives that he gets well-known to other people too. And it's this third item. We hope also we are well-known in your consciences. That he then kind of is the topic sentence that he pins down and he runs with the rest of this paragraph. He essentially is saying this. He's saying, who I am as an apostle, who am I as a person, God knows. I can't fake it in front of God. I can't be unreal in front of God. God understands what's going on. And I hope that other people see the reality of who I am too. He says in verse 12, we're not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take a take pride in appearance instead of in the heart. Remember, there was people in Corinth and the city of Corinth that was all about your appearances and the way you looked and on the outside. And when Paul left, these teachers came in and they capitalized on the Corinthians' desires for people to look good and have good stuff. And so they talked well. They had the perfect haircut. They had the great-looking expensive clothes. And they told the Corinthians... Look, if you follow God, then God's going to bless you with material things and give you a good life. And the Corinthian church ate it up because they looked good. And it, it sounded exactly what they wanted to hear, but they weren't telling the truth. And unfortunately, that's the same desire that American culture has today. And there's still people out there preaching that same garbage and still going crowds every Sunday from it. But 
the Corinthians and in the church, they were looking at Paul and he was not meeting their expectations for what the good orators in Corinth should look like. And Paul tells them this. He says, hey, I'm not worried about what I look like on the outside. I'm worried about your heart. And I'm worried about my heart. In fact, you could probably say that all of 2 Corinthians can be, is a topic What's in your heart? Because just look at a few places where he says this in chapter 1. Who, Jesus, who also, the Holy God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Verse chapter 2. Fight much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, so that you would not be made sorrowful, but that you would know the love which I have especially for you. Chapter 3. You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all people. Chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. For God who said later, for God who said light shall shine in the darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Chapter 5. You have chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. Chapter 6. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. Chapter 7. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Do you see what Paul is getting at? He's saying, look. God knows my heart. It's plain. It's obvious. It's manifest to him. He knows that we love God and we love people. And I hope that you can see my heart and the reality of my heart too. In fact, he goes on in, chapter, in verse 13 to describe what he means about what's in his heart. And he says, basically, I have a love for God and I have a love for people. He says, if people are saying we're crazy, if we're fanatics, we're out of our minds, it's because we have a controlling love of God in our hearts. And he says, if people understand what we're going on and we're sound, it's because we have a controlling love for you. Everything Paul did ran along the tracks of a desire to glorify God or a desire to help others. And he wants that to be obvious to the Corinthians so that they would be proud of it. So Paul essentially says that our hearts should run on the twin tracks of a love for God and a love for others. Y'all, he's just saying what Jesus said in the book of Matthew when asked about the greatest commandment. He said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the greatest and foremost commandment. But the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. One of my favorite Christmas memories from last year with Josie was our trip to Nakula Falls to ride the tram there and see the lights. When we drove up uh, the first time we went there, we, I pulled Josie out of the car and she went, oh, wow. And I was carrying her toward the gate. She was going, oh, wow, wow, oh, wow. I turned to Ashley and I said, why do we have to pay money to go in there? Let's just stand in the parking lot and look at it from here. <laughs> Yeah, that didn't go over too well with Ashley either. <laughs> and so we entered in there, and we rode the train once, we rode it twice, we rode it three times. Josie loved that Christmas train. Trains run on two tracks, and you have to have both tracks in order for them to run. Paul is saying that our heart, the thing that drives us, the thing that motivates us, the thing that determines the choices we make and the behavior we have, should run on the twin tracks of a love for God and a love for other people. 
The problem is sometimes we have a one-track mind. Any of you, your spouses, ever say that you have a one-track mind? I'll admit it. Ashley said that to me this week. That's why I thought about it. <laughs> she claimed I had it this week, and I'm like, That's, I don't have to put that in there. Sometimes I actually will complain because I'll get to work on something, and I'm just oblivious to what's going on. I, I don't hear what Ashley's saying to me. I don't see that Millie is playing and gnawing on the dog's toy. I don't see that the dog is eating Millie's food that's on uh, sitting in a bowl. I don't see that Josie's coloring on the couch with the marker because I'm so one-tracked into the one thing I'm doing. I have a one-track mind. You know, having a one-track mind can get you in trouble. And if you have a one-track mind, you know it'll get you in trouble too. <laughs> it gets me in trouble. But we can't have a one-track heart. A train that's running on one track is going to get derailed every time. And Paul says, I make it, and I am, I hope you see, that I, my heart has two tracks, a love for God and a love for people. And you've got to have both tracks in order for your heart to run right. Because it's possible to be a person that simply has a love for God and doesn't have a love for people. This is someone they may look like that they go to church and they pray all the time and they read the Bible and they follow the Bible rules and they, they say I'm a good Christian. But they're constantly in conflicts, constantly in grudges with people, constantly just happy with the way people are treating them, constantly just happy with life. When does that describe you? You know, they get upset if something little changes in the church, but they're not upset if the baptismal waters are always empty. On the flip side, though, we can also have a love for people and not really a love for God and claim to be Christians. So these are people that are good people and they want to help people and serve people. But if the commands of the Bible become hard to follow, you know, if the commands against homosexuality, if the commands against uh, sex outside of marriage, if the commands against for against unforgiveness and the commands against having bitterness if these commands are hard they say well that's okay you know you don't really have to follow them as long as you love people but Paul says we have to run our hearts on both tracks you have to have a love for God and a love for people and if our hearts are running on both tracks we know we're going in the right direction and he says this in verses 11 and 12 God knows if your heart is on those tracks. You can't fool God. He's got you figured out. But you should hope it's obvious to other people too. If your heart has a genuine love for God. And a genuine love for people. So that's the train and that's the tracks. But what's the, what's the gas that gets us going in the direction that we need? How do we move our hearts down those tracks of a love for God and love for others? Where the gas that we need is a realization of Christ's love for us. And we need a heart that's controlled by Christ's love and pushed along and motivated by Christ's love. It says in verse 13, For if we have lost our minds, it is for God. If we are sound minds, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live will no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. In a few weeks, hard to believe. In two weeks, we'll celebrate Christmas, and we'll celebrate Jesus coming in that little cradle. But that cradle doesn't mean much without the cross. Jesus coming, and, and that Christmas morning, 
was the beginning of the story of his life to make atonement for us. That climax is about what he did. And the, the love of Christ is shown to us when he bore for us our sins on the cross. We have to realize that Jesus didn't just come to earth or go to the cross in order to be a good moral teacher and tell us things. He didn't do that to be a good example for us about what it means to have a selfless life. Jesus did that so he could pay the penalty for our sins on the cross and earn us eternal life through that, his faith in him. And so the Apostle John says something similar in John chapter 1. He said, but this is love that God was revealed in us, that God has sent his only son into the world so that we may live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So in verse 14, Paul says, the love of Christ controls him. The word control in the Greek can simply mean bringing two things together. But here it probably means not just bringing them together, but bringing two things into connection with one another to impel and to force something forward, to move something along, to, to concentrate that and empower that. And he says the thing that controls us and empowers us and directs us is the love of Christ, which certainly could mean our love for Jesus, because the Bible certainly says we should love Jesus. But looking at verse 15, he probably means the fact that Christ loves you. The realization of how much Jesus loves you should be the force and the gas that motivates your heart down the tracks of loving God and of loving other people too. So he says, how much does Christ love us? Well, he said, one died for all, therefore all die. What in the world does he mean here, Paul, that one died for all, therefore all die? Well, one possibility is that he means when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died and paid the penalty that we all deserve for our sin. And he, his death, in a sense, paid our penalty that we deserve for our sin. So in that sense, since Jesus died, all people have died because he died for everybody. But so that we don't get mixed up and think because Jesus died for everybody, therefore everybody goes to heaven. He continues on in verse 15 and says, hey, even though Christ died for all, there are these some who live. That even though Jesus died for everybody, there's a smaller group of people that through faith in Jesus, they actually become saved. And But the interesting thing about verse 15 is not only does he say that there's only a small group of people who are saved despite the fact that Jesus died for everybody, it's why he said Jesus saved them. Did y'all notice that in verse 15? A lot of times when we talk about salvation, we say about going to heaven. Jesus died so we could go to heaven. And that's certainly true. But Paul is telling us that Jesus didn't die simply so you could go to heaven. He died not just for tomorrow. He died for your salvation today. There was something that he had for you and planned for you, and he died for you that you could do right now. And he said that Jesus died not just so you could live for Jesus in heaven, but so that you can live for Jesus now. One died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them on their behalf. That's why Jesus died. In other words, Jesus is saying this, a, a Christian who lives for Jesus little loves Jesus a little. 
A Christian who is only living for themselves is a Christian who doesn't truly understand the love of Christ on the cross. What the cross really meant for us. That love that God has for us should motivate us and change our lives. It shouldn't surprise us that the realization of how much somebody loves us should change us. There's lots of stories that talk about how somebody's love changes other people, even in secular stories. For example, take the story of the Grinch. In the Grinch, he's a guy who's, who's discontent about life. He hates all people. He especially hates the town of Whoville and the Who's that live in Whoville. He is completely unhappy. He has a heart that's too small. He's just a horrible person. And he hates Whoville so much, and he hates Christmas so much, that he decides he's going to steal all the Christmas decorations and the presents from the Who's. And that's exactly what he does. But the Grinch is changed because of the love that a little girl shows him. If, especially in the movie adaptations, both of them, Cindy Lou Who. Whether in one movie she invites him to a festival or another movie she invites him to a party. The love that Cindy Lou Who showed to him when nobody else was willing to love him and the love she showed to her family when the Grinch didn't have a family that loved him like that, it changed his heart. And the amazing thing is if, if a love like that could change the Grinch's heart, how much should the love of Christ change ours? Do you see the importance that Paul is getting at here? You see, the Corinthians, they were people that were obsessed with themselves. What can I do to make me happy? What can I do to improve my life? You know, does this help me or hurt me? Did what they say insult me or bless me? Did what they do hurt me or improve me? It was all about what did that happen have to do about me and my honor and my life. And they didn't realize it. And why Paul keeps going back to it is the Christian life is not about me. A Christian life is about the cross. That's why he keeps going back to the cross. The center of the Christian life is not what's about me, but what is Jesus doing for us on the cross? And so he tells us that we should be controlled by Christ's love, that we should be empowered by that, that our hearts will not go down those twin tracks of a love for God and a love for people unless our heart is powered by Christ's love for us. And the more we realize how much Jesus really loves us, the faster our hearts will travel down that track. So how much do you meditate on the fact that Jesus loves you? How much do you think about it? How much do you around people that talk about it? How much do you meditate on the fact that Jesus loves you? How much does the fact that Jesus loves you change what you do in your daily life? How much does the fact that Jesus loves you change what you say in your daily life? How much do you have a desire and a, and a, a purpose in your heart to do things for Jesus and, and be there for Jesus and to help Jesus in your life? Or has your awe and reverence and desire for Jesus grown small because you don't See Christ's love like you should. Our hearts need to be driving down those tracks of loving God and loving people, but it won't travel down those tracks unless we really get a full understanding of how much Jesus loves us. And it looks like Jesus hanging on the cross. And so, if that's the train and the tracks, then what are some practical things we should do today if those things are true? Well, Paul tells us then in verse 13, I'm sorry, in verse 11. And 12 and 13, these three things real quick that you can practically do today. The first of those, as the main point, 
was that you saw on the screen, let the love of Christ control what you do, is persuade other people. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. The love that Jesus has for us should persuade us to get other people to see Jesus' love too. And persuade other people to see love too. What's interesting is Paul doesn't say simply wearing a cross, putting a bumper sticker on our car, mentioning Jesus' name in a prayer every now and then. He said he persuades people. Intellectual knowledge of Christ is not enough. Intellectual knowledge of the facts of what Jesus did is not enough. People have to be persuaded to surrender their lives to Jesus. And he's saying, I don't just tell people about Jesus. I don't just wear crosses. I don't just wear cool t-shirts. I work to see that decisions are made. He's not saying we should use these manipulative and deceptive tactics to force people to say a prayer. Because a prayer in itself is not what saves people. Your faith in Jesus is what saves you. Simply saying a prayer after a pastor means nothing if you don't have faith. And in all, a lot of 1 Corinthians was all about him saying, look, I don't use deception. I don't use manipulation. I don't use these tactics to force people to have a decision. But there's a difference between using deceptive tactics and persuasion to try to get people to make a decision. All year we've had this cross up, and we're going to continue to have it up. But it's been emphasized this year. I've been asking you guys, what is one person in your life that you can talk to about Jesus before the end of the year? You know, have you talked to them about Jesus? Have you prayed for them? Have you tried to persuade them to accept Jesus? This is the last sermon in this series, so I'm not, there's not going to be a Who's Your One series anymore. But we have a few more weeks till the end of the year that you can finally make that commitment and fulfill that commitment. I hope you made it at the beginning of the year. The good news is that we don't always know how God is changing people's hearts. We might not even see it until eternity. But God knows your heart, and he's asked you to persuade people. The second practical thing we do if the love of Christ is controlling us is what Paul says in verses 11 and 12, and that is that we should make that love obvious or well-known to people. That well-known phrase in verse 11 means to be plain, to be manifest, to be clear, to be public with it. Our love for God and our love for people should be public knowledge. And we should make sure that it's public knowledge. Do people know that you love God and you love people? If the people in our community were to write out a list of things that describe you, what would be on that list? Not the people in the church, the people in the community. Not the people in your family, the people in the community. What things would be on that list? He's an Alabama football fan, likes to hunt, she likes to shop, she likes to hang out with her friends. Where on that list would they suddenly realize that you love God and you love people? Paul says, God knows my heart, but I try to make sure that publicly everybody knows that the love of God and the love for people controls me. And we should try to make sure that's public knowledge for people too. So if the, the love of Christ is controlling us, then we should use persuasion to get people to accept Christ. We should try to make sure that love is public knowledge with people. And then finally, though, we should accept the fact that people might call you crazy for it. Look, if your life is really being controlled by Christ's love for you, and you're really trying to persuade people to follow Jesus, 
and you're really trying to make public that you love God and that you love other people honestly and genuinely from the heart, not as a mask, there's going to be people that say you're out of your mind. There's going to be people that say you're crazy. Just like they did to Paul, because Paul life's modeled a life that was counter to the culture of the Corinthians. You know, they couldn't imagine somebody with this much humility, this much love, that was completely opposite of the self-seeking, self-centered life that all the Corinthians wanted. And if we're following that same life, we're going to have the same kind of reaction too. It's countercultural to what people want to be so Christ-centered instead of self-centered. But if you're truly having a life that's controlled by Christ's love, people are going to say you're out of your mind. So the question then becomes, if you've never had anybody look at you weird because you're following the Bible, or if you've never had anybody say something disparaging because they heard and see that you're a Christian, why is that? Because there's only two options. Either one, you're so surrounded by Christians that are faithfully following the Lord and obeying the Bible that it's not weird to them because all of y'all are doing it. Or B, your Christianity is a little too much like the world. If we're following the life that Paul is describing here, we're going to have people that say, you've lost your mind. And we should accept that. They said the same thing to Jesus. They said the same thing to Paul. They said the same thing to all the heroes of the faith. And they'll say the same thing to you. It's okay. God knows your heart. God knows who you really are. So let the love of Christ control how you live. Control what you do. We should have our hearts on the twin tracks of a love for God and love for others. Empowered by the realization of just how much Christ loves us. And that should be and is public knowledge to God whether you're doing that. And we should seek for it to be public knowledge to other people too. So the next few moments we're going to pray. I'm going to give you a chance to respond to that. Maybe God is laying something on your heart. Maybe he's laying on you that you need to commit or recommit yourself to Christ and to the changed heart. You realize that either you have one track or the other. Or that maybe you haven't live with a life that's controlled by Christ's love for you. These steps are open if you want to come up here at the seat. You're welcome to do that. I'm welcome to talking to you. Will you respond as God has laid on your heart? Or maybe you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus. I hope you saw the love that Christ has for you. The love of the cross. And I hope you've heard that and understood that it's by faith in Jesus alone that saves you, not by your good works. Come talk to me today. I'd love to help you place your faith in Jesus. If you're online, you can comment below. Go to greensportbaptistchurch at gmail.com. We'll sure to answer you there. But you respond as God has laid on your heart.